Let us pray. Our glorious and gracious Father, our shield, the lifter of our heads, the horn of our salvation, our rock, we are gathered today as your covenant people. We are gathered today in the name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are gathered today as your people to receive your forgiveness and wisdom and to give you thanks and praise. As we raise our voices in song and as the trumpet sounds, may you tear down Satan's strongholds. As your word is proclaimed, would you fill us with joy, hope, and peace in believing. As our prayers arise to your heavenly throne like incense, may your blessings fall to earth to renew and transform the whole creation. O Father in heaven, with your Son, And by the Holy Spirit, we give you all honor, glory, and praise now and forever. Amen. Our lesson of the day comes from Joshua chapter 6. This is the story of the fall of Jericho. Uh, I will pick up towards the end of that. The uh, priests have been marching around the city each day. Now we come to the seventh day. And the seventh time it happened... When the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you by all means abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has, as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from Joshua, whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city of Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. And now, Lord, may the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. Amen. 
The book of Joshua records the conquest, the conquering of the promised land by the people of Israel. Uh, God had led his people, the Israelites, out of slavery. Uh, he had led them out from Egypt. They had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and now it is time for them to enter the land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of great blessing, a land that will be God's sanctuary and their home. But the conquest raises some really serious questions for us because it involves the Israelites utterly destroying the Canaanites, wiping out every man, woman, and child. Uh, in Deuteronomy 7, Moses told the Israelites that when they came into the land which you are to possess, he said, you shall conquer the people and utterly destroy them. Moses said, God will go before you to do this, but you have a part to play. You are to utterly destroy the people. And of course we read, this is the first battle as the Israelites are entering the land, the battle of Jericho. And in Joshua 6, we're told that that is what happened. It's what happened at Jericho. The city was utterly destroyed and all that was in it, every man and woman, young and old, were destroyed by the edge of the sword, except for Rahab and her family, of course. Uh, this kind of warfare is often called holy war because God authorizes it. It's distinct from normal warfare or, or just normal just warfare. It's called holy war because God authorizes it and God wages it. It is total warfare sanctioned by the Lord himself. The Lord is the commander in chief and the primary combatant. And so it's called holy war. Uh, of course, holy war is not the only ethical issue raised in this story. Uh, you've also got uh, the ethical dilemma of Rahab's lie. Rahab tells a lie to protect the spies. She disobeys and deceives the king of Israel, uh, the king of Jericho. And so we have to ask, what about that as well? Um, this morning, I want us to look at these two aspects of the story, these two ethical uh, dilemmas, as it were, in this story. Israel's conquest and Rahab's de deception. Uh, Lord willing, next uh, next Sunday, next Lord's Day, we'll come back to Joshua chapter 2 and look at some other aspects of the story, uh, in particular Rahab's scarlet cord, which is another very interesting feature of the story. But we want to look at these two big ethical dilemmas this morning, Israel's conquest and Rahab's deception. Let's start with the warfare, with Israel's conquest. Uh, this is, again, called holy war, or sometimes it's called Yahweh's war, the Lord's war. And uh, certainly if you talk to non-Christians about the Bible, this is one of the issues that will come up uh, very often. A lot of times this is a reason people will give for rejecting God and for rejecting the scriptures. They'll say things like this. I could never worship a God who would command his people to kill all the men, women, and children of another nation. I could never worship such a violent God. You ever heard that kind of objection to the Bible? Uh, they view God when this objection is raised. Uh, they're viewing God as a genocidal maniac. They want God tried for war crimes. And very often you'll get this impression as well, that they view Yahweh, the Yahweh of the Bible, as no different from Allah in the Quran because they say both commanded jihad, both commanded holy war against infidels, against unbelievers. 
the uh, famous sort of celebrity atheist Richard Dawkins says this uh, about this particular issue and just the God of the Old Testament in general. Dawkins says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, vindictive, a bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. All right, that's a mouthful, okay? Piling all those uh, things up uh, as charges that Dawkins is bringing against God. These are his charges against God, and many of them come straight out of this kind of story, this kind of narrative we've got in front of us from Joshua. Of course, when I hear somebody like Dawkins say this, this is just kind of an aside, but when I hear those kinds of charges brought against God, I always want to wonder, I always want to ask the atheist, where did you get these moral standards that you are imposing on God and his word? Uh, how are you calling God to account? Where did these ethical standards come from that you're saying God has, this, this God is unworthy of service and trust and worship because he's violated these standards? How can that be? And, of course, if we wanted to turn the tables, we could point out that atheists don't have the best track record themselves. Atheist dictators in the 20th century slaughtered millions upon millions, uh, many, many more than were killed in the Canaanite conquest or any other war in the Bible. Uh, atheists are not the ones who have taught our culture the evils of shedding innocent blood. Uh, again, atheists have a long history of seeking bloody final solutions as it were, to uh, social problems. And, and, of course, that really does amount to genocide. Atheists have promoted genocide in all kinds of ways uh, over the last hundred-plus years. Uh, so it's hard to see uh, on atheistic premises what the problem with violence really is. What is the problem with violence in an atheistic world? In an atheistic world, isn't it just might makes right and survival of the fittest? Okay, but that's an aside. That, that's, that's one of the things I might say back to Dawkins. We were having a conversation. Um, I'll add this to it. The reason most people in the West are now repulsed by unnecessary violence and bloodshed is precisely because of the very salutary influence of the Bible on our civilization. Uh, it's actually the influence of the same Bible that tells these kinds of stories that have also taught us that unnecessary violence and unjust bloodshed is tragic. We have these sensibilities in our culture, even non-Christians, really because of the influence of the Bible. It's because of the influence of Jesus. Jesus taught us, love your neighbor and love your enemies. These holy war passages of the Bible rankle our peacetime sensibilities precisely because other parts of this same Bible have taught us to love one another and to seek peace. You see that? But we still have to ask this question. Are Dawkins' charges true in any sense? Do they have any validity? Is God some kind of racist bully? Is the God of the Old Testament a genocidal maniac? Do the charges stick? Now, some Christians will respond to these charges by saying, hey, God is God. And if God says to do it, then it must be right. God can do what he wants because he is God. And if God says to wipe out the Canaanites, then it must be a good and just thing to do so because God defines goodness and justice. 
And this argument will go. Otherwise, you're just remaking God in your own image. You're creating a God we can approve of, a God who will not offend our 21st century sensibilities. And so the argument goes, God is just. We are sinners who don't deserve anything anyway. And so God can order the slaughter of men, women, and children anytime he pleases. And who are we to object? And then to kind of seal this argument, sometimes Augustine will be quoted. Augustine once said, if you just believe the parts of the Bible you like and reject the parts you don't like, it is not the Bible you believe, it's yourself. Now, I do think there's a grain of truth in that, especially the Augustine quote. We have to take the Bible as it's given to us, the whole word of God. We seek to be whole Bible Christians. And it is true, we have to submit to God's word. We can't sit in judgment on God's word. But I think that kind of answer that really only appeals to God's bare power, to his raw power, is really not an adequate answer because it's really not a biblical answer. It's really not the most biblical way of dealing with the conquest. I think actually, if we look at scripture as a whole, we need to see how the conquest fits with God's, not only his justice, but with his goodness as well. God's justice and his power can never be separated from his goodness and his love and his mercy and his beauty. Yes, God is omnipotent, but God is not raw power. His power is connected with all these other attributes. And so we have to see how it squares with all the rest of God's character as well. So there's got to be more to say uh, about this than just an appeal to God's raw power. If the story of the conquest is indeed one of those difficult texts in Scripture for us, uh, we're called to wrestle with it. And in wrestling with it, we become wise and we grow in our understanding. And that's what we need to do. I think the first thing we have to recognize here to just kind of clear away some misunderstandings, we have to recognize that the conquest of the Canaanites is not genocide. In fact, the very first Canaanite we meet is Rahab, And she is spared along with the rest of her family. She's spared because she puts her faith in Israel's God. And so we see right off the bat that this warfare against the Canaanites is not unconditional. Gentiles can be saved. They can be spared. They can even be incorporated into Israel. That's what Rahab goes on to do. She marries an Israelite prince and becomes actually uh, the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So this holy war is not racist. This this is not genocide. And further, we know, we we can say this too, just also uh, adding on to that thought, later on in history, Israel will be conquered and driven out of the promised land when she falls into the same sins as the Canaanites. Being an Israelite does not protect you from judgment. It does not make you immune to judgment. And if Israel starts to live like the Canaanites, Israel will be treated like the Canaanites and will also be expelled from the land, vomited out of the land the way the Canaanites were. So no race uh, is, is condemned simply by virtue of being a part of that race. It's not genocide. Ethnicity doesn't condemn or protect you from condemnation. That's the first thing you see. As soon as we meet Rahab, we realize that. If it was just about race, Rahab and her family could not have been spared. But she is spared along with her family. Why is she spared? Because she had faith in Israel's God. Hebrews 11.31 says, By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish. By faith, she's spared. 
So ethics, rather than ethnicity, is the issue. This is not an ethnic cleansing. It is an ethical cleansing. It is cleansing the land of idolatry. If you want to use that kind of language, it's not genocide. It's idolater side. These are people who are being put to death for their idolatry. And in fact, I think that too becomes clear if we go back to God's initial promise of the land to Abraham. Go all the way back to Genesis 15, 16. God's promise to Abraham. God says to Abraham, I will give you this land, the land of Canaan. But he says you won't actually possess it for 400 years. And of course, in the meantime, God's people will be enslaved. They'll suffer all kinds of things themselves. What happens in that 400 years? Why does God wait to give Abraham and his descendants the land? Well, God says in Genesis 15, you shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The sins of the Amorites, the sins of the Canaanites have not yet reached their full measure. It's not yet time to judge them, God says. And so God is going to wait God is long-suffering. God does not judge rashly or prematurely or even preemptively. God waited patiently for the Canaanites. He even gave them opportunity to repent for 400 years. God patiently waited for the Canaanites to repent. They know the stories. We find this with Rahab, with her testimony. They know the stories of the true God, but there are very few in the land of Canaan who will be willing to do what Rahab did and transfer allegiance from the Canaanite gods to Israel's God, to the God of heaven and earth. And so what is God doing for these 400 years? He is waiting for Canaanite sin to reach its full maturation. He's waiting until the Canaanites are ripe for judgment. And then he will bring judgment against them. He's going to let their wickedness intensify for 400 years. And then when God just can't take it anymore, when they become so wicked that they must be destroyed, then God will do it. And actually, if you look into what the Canaanites were really like, um, I'll just put it this way, I don't think you would feel very sorry for them. I don't think you would feel sorry for the fact that they were judged. In fact, I think you would start to wonder why God waited so long to deal with these people. In fact, I'd say the real problem with this holy war, with the conquest of Canaan, is not so much God's judgment of, of the Canaanites as it is God's patience with the Canaanites. Imagine if God had given the Nazis 400 years before demolishing them, 400 years to mature, as it were, in their wickedness, to perfect their wickedness. The Canaanites were the Nazis of the ancient world. The Canaanites practiced child sacrifice. They practiced slavery and obviously prostitution. They were bloodthirsty, cruel, perverse, and immoral. These were not innocent, civilized people minding their own business that God then arbitrarily decided to punish. No, these are people who had defiled themselves with all kinds of dehumanizing practices. These were people who had built a very unjust and cruel society. They deserved to be expelled from the land. If we think it was okay to go to war with Hitler, then it was okay to go to war with the Canaanites. But even so, as wicked as they are, they are only judged when their iniquity reaches its full measure. See, God is perfect in His justice. He's merciful and patient even in His wrath. 
I actually think the, the, the critics of God here, God's critics, really put God in a no-win situation in a sense. The critics will say that God is cruel for judging the Canaanites, but then if he lets the Canaanites live, he's cruel for not doing anything about these wicked people who inflict so much suffering on others. You see that? The, the critics put God in this no-win situation. He's cruel if he, ju- if he judges the Canaanites and he's cruel if he lets them live. But actually, the way Scripture tells the story, we see a God who is gracious and merciful and patient. Yes, a God who will judge the wicked, but will do so in love. Even his judgments are proofs of his love. He judges the wicked. Why? In order to bring shalom, peace, to his creation. He judges the wicked to restore the goodness of what he has made. The Canaanites are like vandals defacing God's creation and God moves them out of the way so he can restore his artwork, his handiwork, his creation to its beauty. For us, it can be hard to see how God's judgments on the wicked are gracious and loving because we live lives that, quite frankly, are incredibly peaceful by historic global standards. But if you talk to people who really have suffered at the hands of cruel tyrants, people who have really endured great oppression, they will see the judgment of God as good news. They will see the wrath of God falling on their oppressors as good news. It's why the psalmist again and again cries out for God to bring judgment. And you see this with others in the scripture as well. Crying out for God to judge the wicked who oppress and hurt people. And so when God judges, when God brings justice into the world, it's a good and a gracious thing. This is how we have to see the conquest of Canaan. In fact, God's war against the Canaanites can really be seen as an intrusion of the future. In some way, it's the future breaking into the present. It's the last day breaking into the middle of history. It's a kind of preview of the final judgment. When God, as the judge, will set everything right. The conquest is not so much behind the times as some kind of, bar, you know, some kind of barbaric way. It's actually ahead of the times. Uh, the conquest is much like the flood. The flood is a type or a picture of what will happen to all the wicked at the last day, to all who refuse to do what Noah did or what Rahab did and turn to the living God. The flood shows us God will wipe the wicked off the face of the earth and the righteous will inherit the earth. It will belong to the righteous in the end. The conquest works the same way. It is a type of the final judgment, a prefiguring of the last day. What is to come? The conquest is basically, therefore, a one-off and unrepeatable event just like Noah's flood. God said after the flood, he would never do that again. And really, after the conquest, you can say the same thing. God will never do it again. It is a unique event in history. It's not as if God gave some kind of standing command to obliterate idolaters right down to this day to take them out with the edge of the sword. There's no standing command to fight unbelievers in this way. That's one thing that I think actually makes the biblical account of holy war very different than the Quran's account of jihad. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of debate over exactly what the Quran teaches, but this is clearly very different. And I think the uniqueness of holy war is especially manifest, the uniqueness of holy war in the Bible is especially manifest in the way holy war is waged. 
The Israelites don't act like terrorists uh, going in and, and, and doing the suicidal bomber kind of thing. In fact, they really don't do much of the fighting at all, except for maybe a little bit of a mop-up operation afterwards. One of the things that is unique about holy war in Scripture is God is the one who does the bulk of the fighting. And indeed, if God does not show up and fight for Israel, Israel has no chance of winning. Uh, in fact, Israel, you can think about this, Israel is a nation of ex-slaves. Israel is undermanned and ill-equipped to take on the Canaanites. This is why Israel didn't want to enter the land of Canaan in the first place 40 years earlier. It's why they were afraid to. Because they looked into the land of Canaan and they saw a military empire. They saw walled cities and giants. And Israel knew, hey, we're not very numerous. We don't really have great weapons. Israel's going to be the underdog in all of these battles. They're going to have to rely on the Lord. And if the Lord does not give them the victory in some kind of miraculous way, then they're not going to win. In fact, that's what happens. If they don't rely on the Lord, they lose. And that's what happens in the very next battle when they go to war with Ai. It should have been an easy one for Israel to win. And yet they lost it because they had been unfaithful. They didn't rely on the Lord. And because God didn't fight for them, they didn't win. See, really, the Canaanites are the ones who are in a position of strength. They're the military empire with weapons and walls and uh, with the, the size advantage and the numerical advantage. We see this play out in Joshua 6. We see this with Jericho. It's a walled city armed to the teeth, heavily defended. It's part of the Canaanite military empire. Israel is a poor, weak nation, not really equipped for battle. They're this fledgling, nomadic people. And so what is Israel's battle strategy? It's totally unique. They will win the war through worship. Their soldiers are not trained fighters. Their soldiers are priests. They'll march around the city seven days and blow trumpets. They win the battle on the Sabbath with musical instruments. They make music, not war. Now that's a very interesting battle strategy, isn't it? That's not a strategy that would have worked on the beaches of Normandy. That's not a strategy that would have worked at Iwo Jima. But it works here because this is holy war. It's unique. God is their commander-in-chief. God is the warrior who fights their battles. It's not so much that Israel fights for God. It's that God fights for Israel. That's what makes holy war unique. And this kind of holy war is so different than, say, what you have with terrorists who might say what they're doing is holy war, but God's not fighting for them. They've clearly got to do it themselves. This is totally different. It's not Israel fighting for God. It's God fighting for Israel. Holy war, again, is really Yahweh's war. It's the Lord who does the work. It's the Lord who is the warrior. Israel is not taking the land for God. God is taking the land for Israel. Israel's not driving out the Canaanites on her own. The Lord is going before them and driving out the Canaanites on their behalf. God is the hero on the battlefield, not Israel and not any of the Israelites. God drives out the Canaanites. God defeats their enemies. Towards the end of the book, Joshua sums it up this way. Joshua 23.3 sums it up well. Joshua said, it is the Lord your God who fought for you. That's what's unique about this. And if we ask what Israel's holy war means for us today, I think this really helps us to see it. How does God fight for us today 
How does God wage his holy war today? What kind of promises has God made for us, to us? And how does God fight for us to bring those promises about? God promises to his church not a land. The land was just a type or a shadow of something greater to come. God doesn't promise merely a strip of land in the Middle East to us. God promises to his people the whole earth. The world is our Canaan. And God will give it to us, all the nations. Again and again, you see this promise reiterated in Scripture that God's salvation is for the whole world, that Jesus Christ, the new and greater Joshua, will inherit the nations as His possession. God promises us the world, and God intends for us to have it. And God intends for us to conquer it. That's what the Great Commission is all about. The Great Commission, we read it this morning, it's our marching orders. We're to go forth and to conquer the nations by discipling them, by making all the nations Christ's disciples. But how do we do so? How does God fight for us? Our weapons are not of the flesh. And our warfare is not against flesh and blood. You see this in Ephesians 6 and 2 Corinthians 10 and other places. Our weapons in this warfare are not swords of steel, but the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The two-edged sword of God's Word, which cuts hearts. It cuts open hearts and transforms people so that they can become living sacrifices devoting themselves to God. It's a priestly sword. The sword of God's Word. Israel won her battle at Jericho through liturgy. We do the same. Every Lord's Day, we take the battering ram of God's Word and through the sermon and the songs and the prayers, we smash down the gates of hell and so free the Rahabs of the world. For us, holy war has been transformed. For us, holy war takes the form of worship and mission. Holy war is liturgical and missional. We don't send spies or warriors into the land with axes or cannons. No, we send missionaries with bread and wine and a Bible. That's how we conduct our warfare. Our missionary journeys and missionary trips are our military campaigns. And when we go out from here, we don't go primarily as agents of God's judgment, but as agents of His grace. We come to people not to slaughter, but to save. Not to conquer, but to convert. That's our mission. And it happens through the Word, and through song, and through prayer. The walls of the city of man are high and fortified. But when the people of God gather and when the trumpets sound and when we shout God's praises, the walls fall and the city of man becomes the city of God. The kingdoms of men become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. The harlot becomes a bride. Idolaters are brought into the worship of the living God. God fights our battles for us. God fights these battles through us as His Word is proclaimed and His praises are sung as we pray and as we serve, as we show mercy to the poor, as we keep our own ranks in line through church discipline. This is how we fight and win. But really, I think this brings us to the other big issue here in this chapter. Let's look at the story of Rahab, Rahab's deception. 
The story starts with Israel in the Acacia Grove or Shittim. Uh, this is bad news, it would seem. Back in Numbers chapter 25, this is the place where the Israelite men prostituted themselves with Moabitess women and gods. They committed physical and spiritual adultery. But now you have Israelite men, again at Shittim, and they go into Canaan, into the city of Jericho, and they enter a prostitute's house, but without falling into Adultery or idolatry. In fact, the prostitute will be converted to the worship of the true God and she will become a faithful bride in Israel. She will be physically and spiritually chaste. The whole story from Numbers 25 is reversed. Joshua was one of two spies that had been sent into the land a generation before to be faithful and to say we can conquer the land. And so now he sends two spies in, two faithful spies to gather intelligence. And yes, they they lodge with Rahab the harlot, but there's no immorality involved in this. They simply needed a covert place to stay, and she provided a place of refuge within the city, a safe house for them. Well, the king of the city gets word of this, and so he confronts Rahab about it. He demands to know where the spies are. But she has cleverly and shrewdly hidden the Israelite men. And then she lies through her teeth. She lies to the king about it. She's got the men on her roof, but she tells the king, oh, those guys, they went that way. And if you hurry now, you can catch them. You just might catch them if you go right now. And of course, then we find out why she lied. At this point, we're still in suspense. We're wondering why this prostitute of all people would do this. But we find out why in verse 9. It's because this woman has repented. Now that the Israelites have arrived, she has changed her allegiance. And we find it's really kind of ironic. Forty years before, the Israelites did not enter Canaan because they were afraid of the Canaanites. But we find now that the Canaanites were afraid of the Israelites at exactly the same time. Their courage melted away. Their spirits fled from them. She says, we heard the story of how the Lord dried up the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And when we heard these things, our hearts melted. She says, we had no courage for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. We know your God is not some tribal deity like our gods. Rahab says, your God is the true God, the God over all. But see, whereas for most of the Canaanites, they only had their hearts melt in fear, Rahab's heart melts in faith. It's interesting, when she's talking about their fear, she says, we. But as soon as she starts to talk about faith, she speaks in the first person, I. I see this about your God. She says in verse 9, I know the Lord has given you the land. And so in verse 12, she says, Therefore, I beg you, swear to me by Yahweh. That's God's covenant name. So this again shows she knows this is the true God. Since I have shown you kindness, will you also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token? That is, give me a sign of this covenant we're making together. That sign will turn out to be the scarlet cord. Again, we'll look at that next week. And then she asked the two spies that her whole family might be spared when Jericho is conquered. See, what has Rahab done? Rahab has changed sides in the great war. She's changed gods. She knows Israel's God is the true God. She expects Israel's God to show her mercy. And so in verse 14, the Israelite spies agree to it. They enter into a covenant with Rahab. 
They say our lives for yours if you tell none of this business of ours. In other words, keep covering us and we'll cover you. When judgment falls on Jericho, stay loyal to us and we'll stay loyal to you. And so they say when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and truly with you. Because you are willing to deceive for us, we will deal truly with you. And then she helps them to escape to the mountains. And of course we know everything happens just as described. Rahab hangs the scarlet cord from her window as a token of the covenant. Uh, in chapter 6, when the city falls, she is spared along with her family because she hid the spies. But the question has to be asked, did Rahab sin by lying to the king? It's one of the key questions in this story. I can put the question another way. Did Rahab sin by protecting the servants of the Lord from their enemies who wanted to kill them? Is this a case where deception to protect the lives of these Israelite spies, was that deception justified? Was it just? Was it righteous? This is an issue because we know God wants us to tell the truth and forbids lies. We sang the Ten Commandments this morning and included in that is the line about how God wants us to speak truly to one another. The Ninth Commandment says you shall not bear false witness. God is a God of truth and He hates all falsehood. The Ninth Commandment especially has to do with speaking truth to power. Speaking truth in a court of law or in a church court. Being truthful when speaking to authorities like parents or rulers. But are there ever exceptions? Are there ever times when it would be righteous and God-honoring to lie? Here the Israelite spies commend Rahab and thank Rahab and even reward Rahab for her lie. Clearly they believed so. And the New Testament writers affirm that. Rahab's faith is praised in James 2 and in Hebrews 11. And in both passages, her act of deception is seen as an act of faith. Hebrews 11 says she gave a friendly welcome to the spies as an act of faith. That friendly welcome had to include concealing their presence when questioned. That's what the friendly welcome consists in. James chapter 2 is even more clear. Rahab the harlot was justified by works when she received the spies and sent them out the other way. Her faith was embodied in and embedded in her act of deception. Her act of deception is seen as an act of faith. Receiving the spies and then sending them out the other way. The other way from what? The other way from where she sent the king of Jericho. Her act of deception is declared to be an act of faith. Indeed, Rahab herself is declared righteous and vindicated by God precisely because of her work of deception. It's considered a faithful action and a good work. And indeed, had she told the truth to the king and handed the spies over, she would have denied the faith and been complicit in the deaths of these men. See, in this particular case, obedience to God required lying to the king. Now, I know that's kind of a dangerous thing to say. Uh, I know that can be dangerous because we could then want to use this story as an excuse for other falsehoods in our day-to-day lives. But you have to recognize situations like this don't happen often in everyday life. In everyday life, we should tell the truth to one another. This text does not excuse lying to one another. 
But in times of war, when we know someone would use the truth for, for evil purposes, we can deceive. The ethics of war are not the same as the ethics of peace. God's people are often, you see, in Scripture and actually in, in history subsequent to the Bible, God's people have often been very shrewd and very wise in concealing the truth and deceiving tyrants. It's one of the most effective ways to fight back against tyranny. Sometimes it's the only thing that someone who is weak can do in the face of tyrannical power. There are numerous stories of how Christians in Europe lied to Nazis to hide Jews. They lied to Nazis in order to save the lives of Jews. And they were right to do so. In times of war or when faced with tyranny, deception is often the only way to survive. It is truly a weapon of the weak against the strong. And in Scripture, this is a theme that recurs again and again and again. Indeed, it's a theme that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, like most everything else in Scripture. Satan used a serpent to deceive Eve. Eve was deceived by the serpent in the garden. After that, any time Satan uses serpent figures to attack the bride or the seed of the bride, she uses deception to fight back. You've heard of eye for eye and, and tooth for tooth. This is lie for lie. Satan lied to Eve when faced with Satan's tyranny. She lies back. She shrewdly outwits the serpent. And so you see this again and again in Scripture. Exodus 1 is a very clear example of this. The, the Hebrew midwives deceived the serpent, uh, the, the serpent figure Pharaoh. Uh, the midwives deceived the serpent figure Pharaoh to thwart his decree that all the Jewish baby boys should be killed. These Egyptian midwives believed that God's law overrode the decree of the king. And so the book of Exodus says they were blessed for their deception. They deceived Pharaoh the tyrant to protect the seed. And God blesses them for it. Moses' mother really did the same thing. She practiced deception to save her baby boy in Exodus 2. In Judges 4 and 5, the woman Jael uses deception to defeat the serpentine king Sisera. She lures him into his, her tent. And then when he has fallen sound asleep, she drives a tent peg through his head. He's the serpent figure. His head is crushed. But how does she do it? Through deception. This is how she, as the bride, fights. And then she is celebrated in Deborah's song in Judges 5 as the most blessed among women. In the book of Genesis, Sarah and Rebekah lied to protect themselves from the tyranny of Pharaoh and Abimelech. These pagan kings who wanted to add these women to their harems. Rebecca had to deceive her husband Isaac so the birthright would be passed to the right son, God's chosen one, Jacob. We see this again and again in Scripture. There is a poetic justice in these deceptions as these women outwit the serpent figures. Later in Scripture, David fakes madness when living among the Philistines to protect himself. His wife, Michal, deceives Saul, who has become a serpent figure, in order to save David's life. Those are in 1 Samuel. Again, this is a recurring theme in Scripture. Does God approve of this kind of thing? Well, what about espionage itself? Here we have spies sent into the land 
Earlier, God had told Israel to send 12 spies into the land of Israel. So you've got to the land of Canaan. So you've got at least these two occasions when God sent spies into the land. How do spies operate? They operate in secrecy and in deception. Spies are in the business of lying. And these are God-approved cases of espionage. Later, they'll fight a battle where they will use uh, an ambush to trick the enemy, to deceive the enemy, and win the battle. Does God approve of that? God's the one who authorized it and commanded it. See, Rahab, like God, God's had his critics when it comes to holy war. Rahab has had her critics as well because she lied. But there is no question she is vindicated by God and by his word. And when you come to the end of Joshua 6 and now Jericho is being attacked and is falling, twice Rahab and her family are said to be spared. Why? Because she hid the spies. Joshua 6.17 and 6.25. God blessed her and rewarded her for her righteous deception. All that to say, Rahab's lie is justified. If she had told the truth and handed the spies over, she would have denied the true God and would have been an accomplice in the deaths of these men. Rahab lied for the sake of truth. Rahab lied to the king, but then she told the truth to the spies, the truth about God, the truth about God's promises, the truth about God's power. She spoke the truth, God by His grace saved Rahab and converted her heart to Himself. And this is manifest in the way she protected the spies. Joshua chapter 2 gives us two significant ethical dilemmas. Holy war and wartime deception. Both of these themes ultimately find their fulfillment and their resolution in the cross of Jesus Christ. The Bible's holy war theme is fulfilled at the cross. God's holy war is ultimately aimed at his ultimate enemies, sin, death, and Satan. At the cross, Jesus endures the worst that sin, death, and Satan can inflict. And because he endures their worst, he defeats them. And he ushers in his peaceable kingdom. He makes himself a victim of their unjust warfare, their unholy warfare. But in doing so, brings in his peaceable kingdom. He is the crucified peacemaker. He is the divine warrior who dies on the battlefield of Calvary to bring peace and victory to his people and to his creation. We've already seen holy war is all about God fighting For his people. God going to war on behalf of his people. God going before his people to defeat their enemies. The ultimate holy war was waged at the cross. For this is what Jesus does. He goes ahead of us. He fights for us. He dies for us. He wins for us. The Jericho of sin and death has fallen. The harlot has become a bride. Because Jesus has died for us. This is the ultimate act of holy war. But the cross really can also be understood as the ultimate act of righteous deception. The righteous deception theme is also fulfilled here. Satan believed he really could thwart God's plan. He was blinded by his own pride. He really thought he could win. He didn't know how God would bring his salvation about. 1 Peter 1.12 tells us that God's plan of salvation was hidden 
from, from, for the ages. And even the angels longed to look into such things. Even the angels scratched their heads wondering how will God bring about this salvation? The angels wanted to look into God's gospel plan. And certainly if that was true of the unfallen angels, it would be true of a fallen angel like Satan. He was not privy to what God would do, how God would bring about salvation. He did not know the deeper magic of God's sacrificial love that would be enacted at the cross. And so when Satan put it in Judas's heart to betray Jesus to death, he believed victory was in his grasp. When Satan inspired the Pharisees to say, come, let us kill the son and take his inheritance, Satan thought he was about to win the great war. When Satan incited the crowds to cry, crucify him, he believed he was on the cusp of a cosmic victory. And of course, he was mistaken. He was deceived. He was tricked. And so 1 Corinthians 2.8 says, If the princes of this world had known the hidden wisdom of God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. As it turned out, Satan was deceived. The lure of power deceived even Satan himself. The deceiver was deceived. And so when Jesus was nailed to the tree, Satan realized he had actually sawn off the very branch he was sitting on. Like Haman, he was hung on his own gallows. The liar had been lied to. The deceiver deceived. The cross was God's Trojan horse. The the cross was God's mousetrap, as Augustine put it. And Satan took the bait. When he had Jesus crucified, the trap snapped. And Satan was crushed. Satan thought the cross would be the end of the story. He found out too late it was really the beginning of a new story. The cross was God's perfect plan. It saved His sinful people by punishing sin in the Son, but it also overthrew Satan by destroying His chief weapon, death. At the cross, the reign of the satanic tyrant is ended. His hostages are set free. God's self-sacrifice triumphs over all. It's holy war. Satan is defeated. The deceiver has been deceived. He has fallen. Let us give thanks together. Father, we do thank You for the great victory that Christ has won on our behalf for His triumph over Satan and all His hosts. Father, may Your Son continue to wage His holy war against the Canaanites of the world that more and more Rahabs may be saved. May You fight for us and through us to bring Your peaceable kingdom into this world, that the world may know your peace, that the world may know your truth. This we pray in the strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.